everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there is always free shipping to the United States. That is Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everybody. Happy Saturday. We are a week, less than a week, away from Thanksgiving in the United States. And I'm just going to say right now that I am thankful for all of you. And it's true, this podcast would be pointless without um, anybody listening. So thank you to everyone, whether you've been a listener since episode one or have only recently discovered the podcast, um, I do appreciate everybody. And that is not just everybody in the United States. It's everybody in other countries who do not celebrate Thanksgiving. (laughs) But I am thankful for you as well. And so Friday, Marilyn Manson released his cover of The Doors uh, song, The End. Uh, It was produced by Shooter Jennings. And that was the song um, that you heard at the beginning of this episode. And no, I am not changing the intro music to my episode, um, but I wanted to play a little snippet of this cover uh, for listeners because this song will be featured in the CBS All Access adaptation of The Stand. I had actually, I I posted a little bit about the song on the Circle Opens blog at thecircleopens.com and... I had never heard this song before, (laughs) to be honest with you, before I heard about uh, Manson doing a cover for this. So after I read that, I downloaded the Doors cover of The Stand, or The Stand of The End, (laughs) and I liked it. It was kind of trippy. It was pretty cool. Um, Very long. (laughs) Uh, So I was excited when I woke up yesterday to see that uh, Manson had released the cover. So I downloaded that and listened to it on my way to work. Um, it clocks in about eight minutes and 23 seconds. I think it's something like that. It's a little over eight minutes. Um, and it's interesting. Uh, I've, I know I've said this before. I've never been a huge fan of Marilyn Manson's music. I did actually side note, we're really quick, useless fact about me in high school. I wrote a paper about for our journalism class about, uh, music and its influence on, school violence. And I was very much opposed to the idea of blaming um, artists and their songs for violence in schools. Um, And Marilyn Manson was a big part of that paper because this was, uh, I was in high school when Columbine happened. So this was a big touchy subject. But um, so before I get into a tangent about all of that, um, I I don't mind Manson as a person. I think he's kind of uh, he's got his thing, and that's great. And his fans are very, very um, passionate about his music. I've just, I don't know, I've just never really been into that whole vibe. So when I heard this, um, I was kind of preparing myself for, I don't know, I'm not sure what I was preparing myself for, but this has a very Manson feel to it, but I really liked it. Uh, it's an interesting take on the original song, um, and I like that Manson kind of puts his darker spin on it, um, and but he kind of still pays homage to that psychedelic sound that the Doors had as well. And I could see this being um, a really great intro 
to the miniseries or even a uh, song to play over a montage of the country falling apart, um, should they do that. The lyrics are spot on if you think about the premise of The Stand. Um, I'm not going to read the lyrics here because it's a long song and there's some explicit uh, language, (laughs) but reading the lyrics, um, you know, uh, talking about the end of everything that stands, desperately in need of some stranger's hand in a desperate land, um, waiting for the summer rain, a danger on the edge of town, ride the King's highway, baby. Okay. I know this is not about Stephen King. I know that this song was written well before the stand was probably even a thought in Stephen King's mind, but I was like, yeah, I'm going to take that as Stephen King's highway, baby. Um, ride the snake. The West is the best. The blue bus is calling us project blue. So I think this is a great choice by Josh Boone or whoever his music supervisor is to include the song in the miniseries. Um, if you guys have not heard this song yet, I do recommend uh, going to YouTube or just downloading it wherever you stream and giving it a listen. Um, it's definitely interesting. Um, I liked it a lot, so I'm excited to see how they're going to incorporate this song into uh, the miniseries. That's all I really have um, for the Stand miniseries at the moment. Um, I don't really have any other reviews either to talk about. Um, I caught up on Castle Rock and, oh boy, if you guys aren't watching that show, you really should be watching that show. Um, the last episode episode just blew it open wide and I was really excited to see where they went with it. I will not spoil you, but uh, if you have watched season one, I highly, highly recommend watching season two. Um Lizzie Kaplan, I can't say enough wonderful things about her performance as Annie Wilkes. Um, But I'm hoping after Castle Rock is completely open that I'll give you guys a more in-depth review on what I thought about the season. Um, I don't know how many episodes are left. I think this was episode seven or eight this last Wednesday, so there can't be that many left. But um, yeah, so you guys should be watching that if you're not. Um, So we're going to go ahead and jump into The Stand, chapter 31. To recap chapters 29 and 30, Stu Redman finally managed to escape the CDC in Stovington, although not without some traumatic experiences along the way. Um, I did have a listener email me. Excuse me. I'm going to be probably clearing my throat a lot. I'm getting another cold. so. Um, But I had a listener uh, email me about the chicken man, uh, the come eat chicken with me, beautiful, it's so dark. And he um, had recommended that maybe this uh, entity had been Randall Flagg, which is not something that I ever really thought about. I just thought it was one of the doctors or scientists within the building um, suffering from delirium um, and dying. But that was a really interesting take on it. Um, I definitely could see where it could be left up to the imagination of the listener as to whether or not that uh, chicken man was actually some kind of... uh, form of Randall Flagg trying to scare Stu. So thank you for that email because that really made me think. Um, so, but you know, Stu is out of the CDC. We just are, he's free. We're just not sure where he's going to go yet. Um, and then in chapter 30, it was a really short chapter, barely a page. Um, and we were taken back to Arnett, Texas, where King kind of closes the circle on where the super flu really started to spread. Um, Campion ended up in Arnett, spread it around, and then from Arnett it just, you know, quickly moving and spreading throughout the country. 
But now Arnett is deserted. Um, those who remain behind are dead. And everything in Arnett is just silence, except for those wind chimes. I still hear them in my head. So chapter 31 is going to bring us back to Chris Bradenton. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because we first heard it back in chapter 23 when we were introduced to Randall Flagg. Only Bradenton knew Flagg by another name, Richard Fry. And a quick refresher, but Bradenton was described as a conductor on one of the underground rail railway systems by which fugitives moved. He was a poet who taught for university classes traveled in the western states to speak to high school English classes as well. Um, and now he's in his 50s, but he had been dismissed from a California college um, 20 or so years ago for getting busted in, um, as King writes, the Great Chicago Pig Convention of 1968, which was the Democratic National Convention, forming his ties to one radical group after another. And now Chris Bradenton, who also goes by the name Kit, he is the man who is supposed to get Flag a clean car and clean papers. Only now, Bradenton is in Mountain City, Tennessee, and he is struck with the super flu. He is laying in his bed, um, slowly dying, and he is delirious. Uh, so much so that he thought his mother had come to visit him in the room, despite the fact that she died in 1969. And she's lecturing him on how not to get mixed up with the crazies and the mad dogs and the whores. And quote, and then her face had broken apart, letting through a horde of grave beetles from the splitting yellow parchment fissures. And he had screamed until blackness wavered. So he kind of keeps having these fever dreams and he's hallucinating about his time in Chicago in 1968, which I just mentioned. And this was obviously the DNC when the Democratic National Convention took place. And this really happened. There were around 10,000 protesters gathered for a peaceful demonstration. And tensions kind of rose between the protesters and the police. Um, and they all kind of descended into violence with the police beating protesters and the protesters throwing food and rocks and concrete at the police, all the while chanting, the whole world is watching the whole world is watching. And Chris Bradenton helped a young, bleeding girl to her feet, but she screamed and shrank against him because an outer space monster was advancing out of the drifting gas, a creature clad in shining black boots and a flak jacket and a wally-eyed gas mask, holding a truncheon in one hand, a can of mace in the other, and grinning. And when the outer space monster pushed its mask back, revealing its grinning, flaming face, they had both screamed because it was the somebody or something he had been waiting for. The man, Kit Bradenton, had always been terrified of. It had been the walking dude. From there, Chris's delirium takes him to Boulder, Colorado, um, where it's hot and it's summer, and there is a young man standing there. Uh, dressed in yellow bikini briefs and Kit wants to be with this man but the man tells him that he has to take the pill first a pill that will send Chris off to Huxley land and that is the place where the moving finger writes and doesn't move on the place where flowers grow on dead oak trees and well there's more um, about an erection here <laughs> but Kit has to take the pill first before he can get any love. So Chris is having these fever dreams about this good-looking man appearing 
Um, but as he's checking out this man's body and gets to his face, it is no longer one of an angel but of a Goya devil murmuring about Captain Tripp's. And Chris's own face appears dark and swelled in a mirror, but, you know, it's not it's not real. This is only the pill. Only it is real. Chris is, he's got the black uh, swollen face. Uh, his throat is a very, very tiny uh, whistle. He can barely breathe. And he is back in his room in Mountain City. And he has this startling thought that he's dying. And then he hears a noise below. And at first he's thinking it's a fire or a police siren, but it's the pounding of footfalls along the downstairs hall through the living room and up the stairs like a stampede. And I kind of pictured this in my head as I'm reading it, and I could hear it because, you know, a lot of horror movies with hauntings, they have that really loud bum, 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 bum sound that just, you know, grows in volume until it reaches a door or somebody's bed, but there's nothing there. It's really terrifying. That's always been one of the scariest parts of uh, horror movies for me is just these loud noises that have no explanation. Only here, there is an explanation, and there is somebody outside of his bedroom door. And Chris is too much to do much of. He's he's too weak to do much of anything. So all he can really do is push himself back against his pillow, because the noise that he hears is no longer a siren, but it's a scream. It's high and inhuman, and it sounds to him like a banshee almost. But he knows who it is. He knows who is about to burst through his door. A man with a faded jean jacket, a murderer's grin on his face, like a whirring white circle of knives, his face jolly as that of a lunatic Santa Claus, carrying a galvanized steel bucket high over his right shoulder. This man throws cold water on Chris, dousing him, and for a moment the shock of it allows Chris to breathe properly again, and he screams and he screams until his throat contracts again and he begins to shake and shiver. This is Randall Flagg, the dark man, the walking dude. We finally get to see him again. And he jumps towards Chris but seems to be suspended in air before he comes down over Chris's chest and he's hovering above him by inches with their faces close together. Reading this, it felt very manic, kind of just really quick movement. Um, I was, of course, picturing like the Matrix where they slow down when they're doing these crazy um, action shots, but uh, Flag, I, I, I was trying to figure out if this was actually what Flag was doing or Chris was just um, hallucinating, but I'm fairly certain this was Flag um, all the way. He does not want Chris to die before they have a chance to talk anyway, because Flag wants his car and Flag wants his papers, and Chris is having a hard time talking. Um, you know, he's so sick he can barely form any words, but. Flag threatens him with bodily harm whenever he can't seem to get the words out fast enough. And Flag does say that if Chris tells him where these things are, he will leave him the right pills, pills that will take care of everything. And I am assuming this was a bribe, you know, tell me where my papers are in my car and I'll leave you the pills to make you well again. He's going to cure this superflu. Chris manages to tell Flag that the papers that he needs are in a dresser downstairs papers in the name of Randall Flagg. And the car, well, Chris has uh, a difficult time recalling where this is. So Flagg, of course, covers his mouth and pinches his nostrils together and starts to suffocate Chris, which shockingly really seems to jog Chris's memory. Um, and Chris tells him that the car is behind the Kanoko Con station outside of town. 
The registration is, of course, under Randall Flagg, and the keys are under the format. It seems that Chris got this particular job uh, done before becoming infected with Captain Trips. So Flagg seems to be able to knock. He he tells Chris goodnight, knocks him out. I don't know if I'm assuming this is using his magic. And then he takes Chris with him to the Kanoko station to get this car. It is a quarter past 3 a.m. by the time they arrive. And they pass dead dogs in the street, a dead man wearing a uniform. And one of my favorite lines in this chapter It says, above, the star shone hard and bright. Sparks struck off the dark skin of the universe. I don't know why that's my favorite line of this chapter, but it is. It's just such a beautifully written line. I don't know. King just has a way with words. Shocking. I know. Um, So there's a tarp on a Buick, a 1975 well-preserved model. There's a desert perfume on the car, the kind that you can only smell clearly at night. The Buick stands in an automobile mortuary of dismembered parts. He walks to a Mustang, singing a line from Hey Little Cobra by the Rip Chords, before kicking over a radiator, and it reveals a nest of jewels underneath it, diamonds and rubies and emeralds. But with a snap of his fingers, Flag manages to make them disappear. Then he turns to see Kit, Chris Bradenton, clad only in ridiculous yellow underpants. So uh, Chris is walking towards Flag over the heat remains of a Detroit rolling iron, and a leaf spring pierces through his foot. Ugh, ugh, I just hate bodily stuff. I hate body horror. <laughs> but this wound is bloodless, and Bradenton's navel is described as a black eye. Flag snaps his fingers, and Chris is gone. He goes back to the Buick and rests his head, his forehead, against the roof on the passenger side. And after a while, time passes, but then the dark man straightens and he grins because he knows where he's supposed to go. He gets into the Buick and starts it up. The headlights shine on a cat with a dead mouse in his mouth. The cat sees Flag grinning at him, drops its food, and runs. Flag laughs and pulls out of the tarmac to the highway, heading south. You know, if a cat doesn't like you, then you are really a terrible person. (laughs) I'm not a cat person. I'm sorry, but they seem to love me. And I don't know if that's because I don't like them and they're trying to win me over. But if a cat is afraid of you or does not like you, that says more about you than it does the cat. So this is a really quick chapter, um, but it takes us back to Flag to see what he's been up to since the country descended into chaos. And the man who promised him a new car and new papers, Chris Bradenton, is dying of the super flu. But not before Flag can get out of him where the papers and the car are. So, I mean, after that, he merely snaps his fingers and Chris is gone. And I wasn't, I mean, he made the jewels disappear. So I guess I was curious, when he snaps his fingers and Chris is gone, Is Chris, does he just kill Chris? Does Chris fall to the ground dead? Or is he like literally physically gone is does flag have that power just to make people and things disappear like that um so this shows us a little more about flag's powers and um i mean can he do this with anything with anyone i mean where do they go exactly and um i don't know i'm we already knew that he could levitate because we saw him do that in chapter 23 in his introduction, um, at the end of that chapter, he's able to levitate and hover above the street. And then we see him do that again here in Chris's bedroom. So I don't know. I'm trying to think of what the extent of his abilities are. 
um, he can't teleport because he needs a car. Um, and he clearly doesn't have, I guess, sight of, he doesn't know where these papers are and where the car is. He needs Chris alive to tell him all of this. And, okay, I have to know, why does he need papers with a new name? Obviously, Randall Flagg is his new persona, but with a country with no law, the country's no longer operating the way it was. There's no more law. So why does this car's registration need to be under his new name? It's very doubtful to me that flag is going to get pulled over by cops now. <laughs> so what is the significance of the paperwork exactly? And I guess maybe we'll find out. But it's also possible that flag had this all um, in motion before Captain Tripp started. Maybe he was just using Chris to get these papers um, and this car. And all of a sudden, the super flu breaks out and now he doesn't need them. So I, I'm, I don't know. Um, I think this was the first chapter where I was kind of like, eh, and through the whole book, like, okay, uh, we get to see Flag again, which was awesome, but it just seemed kind of like filler, I guess. Nothing really happened except that we see a little bit more of what Flag is able to do, and now we know that he's headed south. So Flag is definitely a supernatural entity, um, and he is able to visit people in their dreams, as we've seen. But I want to know, does he know? that he's visiting people in their dreams, that they are having nightmares about him. If he doesn't know, it's possible that maybe these dreams are just a warning to people like Stu and Nick and Fran that something bad is coming, that they should still be afraid, even though, you know, obviously Captain Trips is terrifying, but that's not the end of it. So I'm not really sure yet um, what Flag knows and what he doesn't. But we do know that Flag is now on his way, headed south for Mountain City, Tennessee. Maybe he is headed towards Phoenix, where Lloyd Henry is still locked up with no escape. And while it doesn't look like Captain Trips will kill him, starvation might. And that is waiting for us in Chapter 32. So that is it for this chapter in this episode. Another quick chapter. I didn't really have a whole lot to say on this one. It seemed pretty straightforward. You know, we just got a little bit more of this is these are the symptoms of the super flu delirium. We get a little backstory into Chris Bradenton, who is very quickly dispatched of by Flag. And now we know Flag is on the move with his new Buick. So uh, I guess next week we'll we'll touch in with Lloyd Henry and see what happens there. So thank you, everybody, for listening. If you are enjoying this podcast, you can leave me a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream the podcast. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at thecirclecloses at gmail.com or catch me on social media at The Circle Opens. I am on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, Instagram. And um, I guess, yep, yeah, that's it. Uh, next week is a holiday, but I will still... Um, have an episode up for you guys on Saturday. So I hope that you all have a fantastic week for anyone in America who celebrates Thanksgiving. I hope you have a fantastic holiday and M-O-O-N. That spells. See you next week. This is the end.